This is Transistor, a science series from PRX. I'm Genevieve Sponsler. In the 1960s and early 70s, as the environmental movement was gaining momentum, a sort of new age ecology entered the mainstream. These ideas formed a rallying point for the counterculture, but also affected scientists. Peter Frick-Wright and Robbie Carver have the story of one creative scientist from the period whose discovery could not have come at a worse time. Say what you will about the 70s, it was an open-minded time. And when The Secret Life of Plants was published, pop culture took note. At the beginning of the hippie movement, a crazy idea took root. Turns out, plants feel pain. In a book to be called The Secret Life of Plants, Mr. Peter Tompkins. Mr. Tompkins, what exactly are these experiments in America about the sensitivity of plants? Well, the first one was very interesting. A lie detector expert of the CIA put his machine on a plant and found that he could communicate with a plant. Supposedly scientific and an immediate bestseller, the book claimed plants were sentient, emotional creatures. Are you pulling my leg? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> but to plant scientists, it was a joke. This was junk science, and they were busy working on feeding people. The book was quickly debunked. Because science is about facts and supporting evidence. To scientists, plants were mostly food. Here's UC Davis professor Rick Carbon. Largely, the, the notion was that plants didn't change much. Plants didn't respond. They didn't behave. They just sat there in one place. They were victims. Which brings us to David Rhodes, a researcher at the University of Washington who had PhDs in both organic chemistry and zoology and saw plants differently. David was an Englishman. He uh, was a relatively large, slightly portly man with a fringe of wild curly hair. This is Jack Schultz. He was a grad student with Rhodes and now runs a lab at the University of Missouri. Rhodes' first big idea was that natural selection should favor the assertive plant. It didn't make sense that they'd go through life just waiting to be eaten. They should have evolved some tools to deal with their challenges. He started looking into it and was part of a group that showed that plants changed their internal chemistry in response to attack, adding toxins to their leaves when, say, the very hungry caterpillar comes marching along. And in the course of following up on those experiments, he got some results that defined the rest of his career. Uh, he was comparing two sets of uh, willow trees that were growing outdoors. One set he was attacking with insects inducing trees' defenses by manually placing caterpillars on their leaves. And the other set was the control set with no insects. He took leaves from both sets of trees back to the lab and fed them to different caterpillars to see if the trees' toxins made any difference. And they did. It actually gave the caterpillars diarrhea. But weirdly, some caterpillars eating leaves from the control group were also struggling. His eventual explanation turned traditional plant science on its head. When attacked, these trees released volatile chemicals into the air that warned their neighbors. They were communicating. Right away I saw we had a crazy story here, and I combed the literature for any evidence that plants could perceive other plants, you know, chemically in this way, and I, I couldn't find any at all. Plants shouldn't have been able to do this. Rhodes was reimagining a hundred years of conventional thinking. And there was no trail of breadcrumbs leading him to the discovery. He just saw it. 
and in the summer of 1982, he presented the idea at an American Chemical Society conference. And then everything hit the fan. Uh, I don't think anybody remembers anything else that was said at that meeting. Schultz and another postdoc, Ian Baldwin, moved to Dartmouth and designed a cleaner experiment in the lab that got similar results. Together, the two papers became known as Talking Trees, which made for even better headlines. I just remember how the phone was ringing. I mean, it was really... <laughs> woo, <you know? laughs> Gordon Orion's ran the lab where Rhodes did this experiment. None of us considered it to be talking trees, but this is, you know, when the press gets a hold of something like this, it gets blown up that way. Are plants capable of communicating with each other? New studies. In fact, they were entering a minefield because talking trees sounded a lot like the new agey stuff that had just been debunked. Mrs. Hashimoto looks forward to actual conversation with her cactus. The secret life of plants really hurt things because, especially in the scientific community, of course, it was regarded as nonsense. And, you know, this really looked like it was ripped from the pages of that book. It was a problem of language. Both Rhodes and the secret life of plants were saying plants could communicate. But Rhodes was talking about chemicals, not feelings. Still, it sent the field looking for weaknesses. The eminent British scientist Sir John Lawton called the experiments more likely a transfer of diseases, or root-to-root connections. It was a bit of a death blow. And to make matters worse, Rhodes began having trouble replicating his results. As far as I'm aware, there was nothing flawed in the experiments. Uh, under the conditions and the, the trees that he had and the situations, it didn't show up. Sometimes it worked, but not every time. These talking trees weren't much for conversation. After a few years, the grants disappeared and the money dried up. Pretty soon he was running out of options and took a job teaching organic chemistry at a community college. He ultimately um, gave up and left science. In the late 90s, Rhodes was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He took his own life in 2002. What's kind of ironic is that I think I know why he didn't get repeatable results. He was doing experiments with trees like Douglas firs uh, in the spring, and then you know he would analyze the data and then repeat the experiment in the fall. And we have since discovered that mature leaves don't respond to insects attacking them. But he just didn't realize that at certain times of the year the trees wouldn't talk back. Even though his experiments have now been replicated and his theories confirmed, Rhodes has been mostly forgotten. It's really hard to find his original paper. But it turns out his discovery was just the tip of the iceberg. Well, since that plant communication thing, people started looking for cool things plants could do that they hadn't considered before. Scientists have now shown that some plants share resources through networks of underground fungi. Most acknowledge their own family and they'll summon insects to eat whatever's eating them, based on the saliva of their attacker. There's evidence that plants have a kind of hearing. They'll react to the sound of a caterpillar munching on leaves. And they even have a sort of vision. Plants grow faster when photoreceptors in their leaves sense that they're surrounded by too much green. Of course, we still have the same language problems. The words vision and hearing are the first steps down that same slippery slope. How wide is the gulf between man and plant? if there is a gulf at all. It's not vision, and it's not hearing. It's an entirely different evolutionary strategy. 
Talking about plants as if they're people says more about us than it does about what plants actually do. There's a huge conversation going on, and we're just now learning how to tune in and listen. Plants are in direct communication with pollinators, pests, herbivores, and each other. If not for roads, it might actually still be a secret. For 30 Minutes West, I'm Peter Frickwright. Peter produced this story with Robbie Carver for our STEM story project. 30 Minutes West is their podcast on the natural world. Now that you've nerded out about science, let's nerd out about radio. The How Sound podcast interviewed Peter and Robbie about how they composed music for this story. We'll have a link at transistor.prx.org. The Transistor team includes me, PRX Chief Content Officer John Barth and Lily Bowie. This episode was mixed for Transistor by Erica Lance. Transistor is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information at sloan.org. This is PRX.